Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, Peter McKay, former Attorney General for Canada, on a letter written to the RCMP commissioner calling for an investigation into the SNC scandal. Also, Justin Trudeau now has lower approval ratings than Donald Trump. This, according to Ipsos polling, I spoke with the CEO and president of Ipsos, Daryl Bricker, about that. You'll be hearing the Alberta election news from Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. And reviewing criminal cases evolving in Canada, Scott Newark talked to us about SNC-Lavalin, the Admiral Mark Norman case, Correctional Service Canada, engaging in a series of releases of high-risk offenders, including individuals who are a high risk to offend against children. And Quebec Premier Francois Legault is pressing ahead with his party's legislation banning the wearing of religious symbols by any public servant in the province. Julius Gray joined me. He's a civil rights, human rights lawyer in Montreal. Five former Canadian attorneys general wrote an open letter to RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky calling for an investigation into interference by the PMO and Justin Trudeau with former federal attorney general Jody Wilson-Raybould concerning criminal charges laid against SNC-Lavalin. Peter McKay is a former Attorney General, Justice Minister for Canada in the Stephen Harper Conservative government. Mr. McKay, thank you very much for the time. Always a pleasure, Roy. So uh, remind us, please, why it is that five former Attorneys General felt it was so significant that you got together as a group to send the letter to the Commissioner? Well, the reason, quite simply, is that this has a level of criminality and by that I mean definition of the criminal code of Canada is an attempt a willful attempt to obstruct interfere or pervert the course of justice well when one looks at the facts of the case that have been laid out now before the Justice Committee and public commentary um, evidence that a person was pressured in an effort to have her, one Jody Wilson-Rabel, then Attorney General, instruct or pressure the Director of Public Prosecutions to make a different decision on whether to offer SNC-Lavalin, a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, that, in my view, is at least at the threshold of a potential criminal code offence. And so we're asking for the RCMP to investigate that, to take matters into their hands, to potential witnesses to look at other emails that may exist. But this case is now, in my view, well beyond a parliamentary committee or potentially uh, uh, some form of a, a commission. Uh, I think this requires the police to take a look at it and to take a serious look at it, given what's at stake. So what's happened uh, since the or what has happened since the letter was sent to the RCMP commissioner to what happened Friday? And then Friday night, the uh, prime minister's press office gave a uh, an explanation, a written explanation to Global News in which they say the prime minister says he had no knowledge of that phone call between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Michael Wernick until the rest of us in Canada were aware, or no full knowledge of it, which is an interesting choice of words, no full knowledge. It's very difficult to believe, and this point has been made again and again, that Mr. Wernick says that he had conversation with the Prime Minister who was adamant about wanting um, a deferred 
prosecution agreement, at least discussed with prosecutors. Um, and then Mr. Wernick speaking with Jody Wilson-Raybould, but somehow then Wernick doesn't confer that the information from that phone call to the prime minister. That's a, that's a tough sell for most people. It, it really is. It seems to push the bounds of credulity pretty far, especially when in the call, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Warnick says, well, I'm going to be speaking to the prime minister when I get off the phone. And he certainly referenced in the call as well that he had been speaking and was calling on behalf of the prime minister and then goes about several times in essence, speaking for him and saying, you know, he's going to be very upset. He he wants this done. He's in a certain frame of mind. He's going to make this happen one way or another. And there's where it starts to get into the area of implied threats, which, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould referenced in her testimony. And again, this was done to pervert the course of justice. This was to reverse a decision taken, I believe, September the 6th, by Kathleen Roussel, the Director of Public Prosecutions, to not offer SNC that special treatment under deferred prosecution. And as you'll know, it, it, it gets complicated, but this was the very first time this particular provision of the criminal code was to be used because, Roy, it had only been introduced, slipped into a budget bill at the dying days of Parliament, and this was almost, you could say, written for SNC-Lavalin, it would appear in the circumstances. So all of this, again, uh, in my view, requires a professional investigation well beyond the partisanship, beyond the politics. There's the legality and the politics, which are separate and apart and sometimes hard to differentiate. But for Mr. Trudeau, of course, having a female Aboriginal Justice Minister Attorney General removed from her position, shuffled off to another post, and then she later resigned. All of this certainly smacks of a very deliberate, persistent, and uh, quite coordinated attempt to have her do something she clearly didn't want to do because she knew it was wrong. So the news today is that uh, Gerald Butts has said that he has either already sent or transmitted emails and other information to the Justice Committee to follow up on what Jody Wilson-Raybould provided on Friday. What do you think he can possibly offer, keeping in mind that Mr. Butts told the Justice Committee, and I'll say it again, that the government was unaware Jody Wilson-Raybould felt political interference was taking place until after she was moved from the Attorney General's position? Well, she uh, she clearly indicated in her testimony the opposite, that she made it clear to anyone and everyone who had attempted to pressure her that she thought it was inappropriate, that she felt it was pressure. She was clearly uncomfortable. That's what was revealing in the tone of that recording. You can tell she's exacerbated. She's feeling very uh, put upon by this call from the clerk of the Privy Council, Mr. Warnick. The other thing to remember is that Mr. Butts is a central figure in all of this. Again, uh, the operating mind spokesperson for the Prime Minister. He met with her at a hotel in uh, in Ottawa and uh, was very clearly relaying to her that they had to get this done. He's also quoted by her chief of staff as saying, there is no solution that doesn't involve political interference. Well, that's a bit of a smoking gun. And I'm surprised that Mr. Butts never addressed that issue head-on when he was before the Justice Committee. So I have no idea what might be in his, in his emails or further information. 
Um, he may ha- he should be recalled, as should Jody Wilson-Raybould, to shed further light on this context of back and forth and various emails and now recordings. Um, we have very differing views of what was happening here. And, of course, the Prime Minister and Mr. Butts have also been fond of using the expression that people can experience things differently. Well, I think Canadians are, are pretty uh, pretty hard over now on what that means. So let me ask you how you would have experienced uh, interference from the Prime Minister's office, perhaps directly from a Prime Minister, when you were the Attorney General for Canada. Had you been in the same situation that Jody Wilson-Raybould found herself in, how would Peter McKay react? Well, I would have pushed back in every sense of the word at the earliest possible moment that that happened. If somebody from his office had uh, made that kind of approach, and I want to be very clear why that never happened, and of course we didn't have deferred prosecution agreements at that moment in time, but it is not only inappropriate, as I said at the outset, it is potentially a criminal offense to try to interfere with prosecutorial discretion. I was not only the Attorney General and Justice Minister, I was a frontline prosecutor, as was Jody Wilson-Raybould. And it's, it's very similar to the fact that we all know you don't call a judge when there's an ongoing trial. And similarly, you do not call a prosecutor when a case is before the courts. That's why it's in the criminal code. That's why we do everything we can to preserve and promote prosecutorial discretion. And that's why our government, in 2006, Roy, took the Director of Public Prosecution's office out from under the direct purview of the Department of Justice and Attorney General, made it more of an arm's length, more uh, independent office to avoid political interference. And we did that when? In the aftermath of the Gomery inquiry, where there was, again, evidence of political interference and manipulation. And so this is a black eye for a system. It certainly has political ramifications. But I'm worried about our reputation internationally. I'm worried about how this undermines the sanctity of our justice system. And somebody in the PMO surely should have known that this was inappropriate and should have said, no, Prime Minister, we can't do this. And surely Jody Wilson-Raybould herself, at least according to her, said just that. One more question for you, Mr. McKay. Has there been any response of any kind that you're aware of to the letter that you and four other former attorneys general sent to the RCMP commissioner? I, I did receive word back from her office that she had received it. They would take it under advisement. It was a, a standard response that you would expect from the RCMP. But they, uh, they clearly are aware and are seized of the issue, and time will tell. Um, there's been questions asked in the House of Commons and otherwise as to whether this investigation has or will begin. Um, it's not just the RCMP, obviously, that could investigate. The Ontario Provincial Police uh, or the City of Ottawa, where some of this took place, could also uh, investigate if they chose to do so. Okay. Mr. McKay, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. You as well, Roy. All the best. Bye-bye. Peter McKay, the former Attorney General, former Justice Minister, and former Prosecutor. A global news story, the uh, Trudeau government, Mr. Trudeau particularly, has a lower approval rating than Donald Trump, with uh, the Tories way ahead nationally. And that's an Ipsos pool for, a poll rather, for Global News. And Justin Trudeau appears to have suffered more damage from the SNC-Levelin scandal than uh, President Donald Trump did from the 
Russia collusion investigation. And if the federal election were held today instead of October the 21st, well, what exactly would happen? Joining us on the program is Daryl Bricker, Global President, CEO Ipsos Public Affairs. He's the co-author of Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Daryl, thank you for the time. So if the election were held today, what would we be looking at as far as a national electorate decision tonight? Well, if the election were held today based on the numbers that we have, it would very likely be a conservative majority. And would we have been able to say that? When when did that tide turn to that point? Well, really, the the day that the Globe and Mail published uh, the story on uh, the first story on SNC Lavalin, it really started to go downhill from there. But to be honest, I mean, if you looked at the uh, the, the Liberals' numbers prior to that, so uh, into the fourth quarter of last year into the early first quarter of this year, uh, they were already on some fairly thin ice. It was going to be a competitive competitive election. But what happened was somebody decided to hand Justin Trudeau an anvil as he was standing on that uh, on the uh, on the thin ice and he's and they've crashed down quite a bit. Is there a, a national losing of trust in this prime minister, even among people who may have voted for him in 2015? Uh, definitely a loss of trust, but uh, at very best, a lot of confusion. Um, you know, he was—he sold himself to Canadians as one type of politician, and really seems to be coming across as another type of politician, particularly over the last three or four months. And it's really caused people to reconsider their, uh, I guess, perceptions over the space of the last couple of years. You know, if I go back to the beginning of February, when we first heard the story about the Globe and Mail a news story and the, and the leak to the Globe and Mail reporters. And then we saw the prime minister say, no, this is false. It's not right. It's just false. There was no way that morning that I or maybe any of us could have guessed that this would turn into one of the most significant political news developments and stories of the past 20 years in, in Canadian politics. Or am I overstating that? No, you're not. I mean, I'm, I've been around this game for probably um, close to three decades, and, and I've never quite seen anything like it. I mean, the last time I saw anything that looked like this is when Sheila Fraser stood up in the, uh, in the National Press Gallery back in 2004 and outlined AdScam, and the impact has been basically the same. Uh, so somebody who looked like he was in a really certain position at the time, Paul Martin, uh, very similar to Justin Trudeau coming into into this year, although, you know, as I said before, on somewhat slippery or thin ice. Um, but it crashed Paul Martin down 10 points in the space, two, uh, space of two or three days. And he never came back. And right now we've seen Justin Trudeau going through the same thing. And interestingly enough, about the same amount, about 10 points. They just leaked off um, as a result of what happened on, uh, on February 7th, I think was the, the first story that came out from the Global Mail. And it's not coming back. In fact, we may not have even found the, the floor yet. I was about to ask you about that. So Friday, we have the uh, release of the phone conversation between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Michael Wernick, and the Prime Minister's office sending a reply, an email reply, to Global News saying the Prime Minister had no idea about that conversation until we all found out. It was a little difficult to believe. But given that information on Friday and the numbers that you had before Friday, is that just going to be a contributing factor to just driving liberal numbers down even further? 
Well, it's certainly not going to get get them to go oh, up. No. I mean, so we'll 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 have to take a look and see how it goes over the next week or so, a couple of weeks in terms of public opinion. But the, the problem that they've got is that there's this fly on the wall quality that's associated with that tape, and you know everybody can see themselves in that conversation. I mean, these are two people having this conversation, and they can evaluate it on their own. So we don't have to listen to what the prime minister has to say about it. We don't have to listen to about anybody from the prime minister's office who testified or the clerk of the privy council or any. Anybody else has to say about what happened on that on that that phone call, which is probably fairly representative of what happened in a number of interactions that uh, that uh, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould had with the government on this topic. You can now see what it was like, or you can now hear what it was like, and people can form their opinions based on that, which makes it impervious to any of the spin that anybody wants to put on it. They'll make up their own minds. And, Daryl, here we have a situation now where if an election were held today, based on the polling that you've done and the information in the poll, we'd have a majority conservative government, and yet Andrew Scheer and the conservatives really have done nothing. The basically unknown. I mean, this is entirely a reaction to the government's actions and Justin Trudeau's actions and the reactions of the people who are part of his team. Uh, Andrew Scheer is just the benefactor. Now, at some point, what's going to happen is public attention is going to turn to that particular option, and maybe they'll have a different conclusion about Andrew Scheer. Uh, but at the moment, he is the big, uh, he's benefiting the most from this. But I should also say we're, we're seeing a bit of a fragmentation of the progressive vote, so that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP is benefiting from this, the Green Party is benefiting from this, and interestingly enough, in the province of Quebec, the Bloc Québécois is benefiting from it as well. I was about to ask you about how Quebecers are responding to this situation. Is it significantly different to the rest of the country? Are they seeing it as, as, as English Canada picking on, on French Canada again? And, uh, and, and could that actually play to, to favor Justin Trudeau and the Liberals in Quebec? Well, it may be a bit, but what we've seen in, in, the, uh, in the, the voting numbers, the polling in, in the province of Quebec, is the Liberals have come down a fair amount. Uh, in the province of Quebec, and, and we've seen a, uh, an equivalent rise in both the uh, the Conservative Party's uh, polling numbers, but also the Bloc Québécois polling numbers. So uh, it, the Liberals remain ahead in, in, in Quebec, which is the only region in the country where we could say that today. Uh, but they're even down there. Are Canadian voters fickle? Are we, uh, or, or are we really fed up? Or are we just looking at individual political parties once they're granted power and we see them or we perceive them to have abused that power, we just turn our backs on them. Have we begun to the point as voters, as people, who just don't trust the process, don't trust the parties, don't trust the politicians, and so our vote, maybe every four years, for a significant percentage of the population, is up for grabs? Well, yeah. I mean, the partisanship uh, is not what it used to be. So people can move back and forth among the various parties. But what's really happened in, in Canada is we've broken into two blocks of voters. There's conservative voters, and then there's progressive voters. And progressive voters uh, can only beat conservative voters when they get united behind a single choice. And the way they have to do that is the way that Justin Trudeau did it in the last election campaign, which he, you know, offers a sense of hope and change and difference and all those kinds of things. But when you behave in power like you're just every other political party, when you've offered people a difference, you've offered them a choice based on this new agenda, progressive agenda, and you don't deliver it, and then you behave like any other po- uh, politician, the, uh, the disappointment is bigger. <laughs> and that's what he's suffering from right now. And as you said, it's not just this story. 
No, it's not just the story. They were in trouble before this, and the reason they were in trouble uh, was because they have, uh, you know, uh, the, the accomplishments that they were supposed to deliver. Uh, it's a little difficult to see what they are. I mean, I, they actually have some good arguments on some some of the items, but the public's not really aware of it. Uh, they've been spending a lot of time talking about issues in, uh, on their agenda that are really, really important to them, but not as important to the public. Uh, and there's been a few other issues that have emerged, say, for example, the immigration issue and, and uh, you know, issues around taxes and small businesses and a whole bunch of other things over the last couple of years and throw in the, uh, the India trip. And it, it, all of it was adding up to a problem already for Justin Trudeau. And as we moved into the uh, last quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year, people's economic confidence also got wobbly. So they were losing confidence in the government, and it's now appearing that you know, they're losing confidence maybe a bit in, in the direction of the country and, and how things are going. Yeah. So all of that adds up to, a, uh, you know, a combustible situation. And on February the 7th, the Global Mail threw a match. Yeah. And, and in Western Canada, we know that Western Canadians, particularly in the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan, are unhappy with, uh, with, with their particular position in, in Canada, perceived position, right position, correct, incorrect. It doesn't matter because to a significant percentage, the majority perhaps, this is a worrisome reality. So it's not just Quebec anymore. Now you have Western Canada entering this division uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of commitment. I don't know if I'm using the right word here, but I, I'm concerned about what I'm hearing from, from Western Canada now. Well, what happened in Western Canada is the, the Prime Minister came out with a very clear set of promises right. uh, during the course of the last election. He was going to reconcile uh, the global fight uh, against climate change with the ability of Alberta to get its product to oil, yeah. as well product to markets. So he was, the trade-off was supposed to be, we're going to put in place some sort of a carbon regime, as they did in the province of Alberta under Rachel Notley, and now we're going to be experiencing on April the 1st. Uh, nationally, and that was going to create the social license, and he called it that at the time, the social license for the building of new pipelines to help Alberta get their uh, oil and gas products to marketplace. So we're moving on the things that Trudeau said were essential, and the thing that was supposed to be delivered to Western Canada, particularly to Alberta and Saskatchewan, is no closer to happening today than it was back then. Do you, so that's the disappointment. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Okay. Talk to us, please, about how the polling breaks down. Where is the conservative strength? Where is the liberal weakness? Uh, where are the fault lines here in this country now? Well, the conservatives are strong everywhere now. Um, and with the exception of Quebec, where they're on the rise, they're, even in our latest polling, have them leading in Atlantic Canada, where they haven't led for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, small samples in Atlantic Canada, we'll see how that goes. Uh, the real problem for the, Liberal, uh, for the Liberal Party right now is the conservatives have a double-digit lead in the province of Ontario. And if you have a double-digit lead in the province of Ontario, you win elections. I mean, that's all there is to it. If you're ahead by double digits in the province overall, you're probably leading in the, uh, in the nine. 5 by at least 15 points and that means a sweep and that's that's basically the end of it if uh, if, uh, if if you're a conservative if you're a conservative party or a liberal party if you've got that kind of a lead very very difficult to beat you does this story have enough legs enough staying power to carry through to October assuming nothing else happens well the problem that they've got is it does ha- seem to have staying power in every day and every way, the government seems to find a way to keep it alive. Or uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and her supporters find a way to keep it alive. So there's, there's 
lots more to happen here. This mm-hmm. is the problem. And, you know, uh, she still hasn't had her opportunity to speak, so, you know, that'll be a news event. I heard today that Mr. Butts is now going to be providing some more evidence to the Justice Committee in writing the same way that Josie Jody Wilson-Raybould did. Okay, well, there's another two or three days of story, so it just keeps rolling on. Now try this one. If she's removed from the Liberal Caucus on Wednesday of this uh, coming week. There's another one. There's another yeah. one. And the problem that they've got is that, um, you know, until she gets her opportunity to get her entire case on the line, it's very difficult to see how this thing just goes away. It's a, it, it, the problem is that it's now moved beyond just being sort of a legalistic kind of a discussion into a human drama. And human, human dramas attract attention. And that's the problem that they're facing. We've now transcended to the, to the level of, uh, of uh, you know, almost like a spy novel. <laughs> does this, what exactly has happened here? Yeah. Does this have the, it sounds like, a, it's reading like a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, does this have the, um, uh, does, does this have the power to eclipse Sponsorgate? Well, it has the the ability to affect it. I mean, so if you remember what happened back at that time with, with AdScam, uh, what happened on that was that the liberals dropped down precipitously, called an early election to kind of get things back on track, right. and then viciously attacked the Conservative Party through the course of the campaign and were able to pull out a minority government as a result. But then within 18 months ended up uh, electing the uh, the uh, Conservatives under Stephen Harper. So the, the the irony is, I mean, if you would have gone back six months, you know, previously here today, and you would have said, you know, Andrew Scheer could be the prime minister of the country, you probably wouldn't have had a lot of serious conversation among your friends and family about the possibility of that. It was very similar when Stephen Harper was elected the uh, the leader of the uh, Conservative Party back in 2004. People really didn't see any possibility of him becoming uh, prime minister. But what ended up happening is through a series of self-inflicted wounds, the Liberals created the possibility and indeed ended up electing Stephen Harper and he became the Prime Minister for 10 years. So uh, at the moment what's happening is there's nothing really that the Conservatives are doing. I mean, maybe some tactical things in the House of Commons and a few other things that are, are keeping the story a little bit more alive, but everything is being driven by fights within the Liberal Party right. itself and the media. Daryl, thank you so much for the time. I always appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Daryl Bricker. Back with us to talk about the uh, Alberta election is Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mountain Royal University in Calgary, editor of Orange Chinook, the book that detailed what led to the NDP Alberta win in 2015. Professor Bratt, uh, thank you so much for the time. And what has been most impactful in the last week in the Alberta election? Probably yesterday, the UCP had a big rally uh, in Calgary at Spruce Meadows with over a thousand supporters there, and they released their party platform. Um, some of this had been spilled out over over the campaign and, and previous to the campaign, but there it is, fully costed in one document, and it's a massive document. It's 118 pages. And uh, it's one of the largest, if not the largest, party platforms I have seen. To put that in comparison, the NDP platform in 2015 was 25 pages long. So there's a lot of detail in here. And there's, um, they, they got an external accounting firm to go through their, their numbers. And what impact will that have on the, on the voting, uh, on the electorate in Alberta? And do the numbers still favor, as significantly as they did just before the campaign started, Jason Kenney and the UCP? 
We haven't seen publicly available polling data yet. Um, beyond the platform, which I think was was a good day for the UCP, they've had some rocky steps through the last week. And so we're waiting to see how the polling numbers play itself out. Um, we're hearing that the NDP may be closing the gap, but I want to see further detail on that. And, and the reason for that is is the continuation of some of these scandals that I talked about last Sunday have continued, um, particularly around gay-straight alliances. This is the uh, the club for um, LGBTQ kids as well as straight kids at schools that has been a very contentious issue in Alberta going back to the Prentice days. And Kenny announced that he was going to roll back the legislation that the NDP brought in and go back to the old PC legislation. And this led to a large rally in Edmonton on Wednesday and a similar rally in, in Calgary on, on Thursday. Um, so we'll have to see if, if that makes any dent uh, beyond you know the, the jobs, the economy, pipelines, which has been the slogan of the UCP. Now the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax, is imposed on four provinces tomorrow. What kind of impact will that have in Alberta, given that there is a carbon tax, but Mr. Kenny has declared it's not going to be around anymore if he's premier? Uh, I think it, it will have an impact as, as Albertans watch the news in the, in the other provinces. So Kenny has promised to repeal, it would be Bill 1 to repeal the Alberta carbon tax, and to join Doug Ford and Scott Moe in their suit uh, against the federal government to get rid of the federal carbon tax. I have been skeptical about whether that suit would, would go through. I think the federal government has clear jurisdiction, but um, the Trudeau government looks quite shaky right now, and Andrew Scheer has promised also to repeal the federal carbon tax. So we'll have to see what plays itself out in the, uh, in the fall. So if, if I were to toss a coin into the air and heads its UCP and tails, it's New Democrats, which one are you picking? Oh, I'm still looking at a UCP majority. I'm looking at uh, over 60 seats uh, out of 87 will go to the UCP. Um, the rural ridings represent 30 seats, and the UCP will probably get 29 of those. That gives them a tremendous advantage going into the cities. Um, there's still two weeks to go in the campaign. Right. Uh, the UCP has not run a good campaign because of issues around um, the the leadership race for the UCP back in 2017, okay. stuff around gay straight alliances. But with the economy in turmoil, that's usually a sign of uh, change of government. Thanks so much for the time, Professor Brad. Really appreciate it. Okay, we'll see you right. Bye bye. Professor Dwayne Bratt from Mount Royal University in Calgary. The book is Orange Chinook. So there are core issues that we're talking about in this country, and the most significant one that has the country engaged is, of course, the SNC Lavalin, Justin Trudeau, PMO, Jody Wilson Raybould developing scandal. And now after Jody Wilson-Raybould released her recorded phone call with Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council, and the accompanying documentation, some 43 pages, 
Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary of the prime minister, says that he has sent more material to the Justice Committee, including emails and uh, and other material that relates to what Jody Wilson-Raybould released on Friday. I spoke with Peter McKay about that, of course, uh, in the last half hour, former attorney general for Canada, also a former prosecutor. With us now is our good friend Scott Newark, who was an Alberta prosecutor, as you know, and is also an international security expert and uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, was the executive director for the Canadian Police Association. There are so many issues that that we want to talk to uh, Mr. Newark about. Um, but let's start with the one that everybody's talking about, Scott, and that's SNC-Lavalin. You wrote a you wrote an op-ed or an opinion piece for the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, which I found very interesting. And your take is a little different to what most people are saying. Yeah, let me let me just add, by the way, as well to that uh, career description. I also was a uh, senior policy advisor, political staffer to Stockwell Day. And when I did work with the Ontario government, I was an order in council appointment, which meant I reported directly to ministers. So I've seen the inside, shall we say, of the political world as well, too. Um, the thing that uh, I wrote about in the McDonnell-Laurier piece was, um, I think this is as much as anything um, an example of I mean, I think I used the phrase a battle of egos, but it's also left hand not knowing what right hand is doing. And I just gave sort of multiple examples of that. And the thing that struck me in particular, two things in particular about the latest materials released by Judy Wilson-Raybould. One was that as late as December, mid-December, in other words, uh, three full months after she says that, you know, she very bluntly said, I've made my mind up, there will be no reconsideration of this. She was still subject to conversations about it, which I think suggests that um, for whatever reason, that clarity uh, was not present. And I think that's a deficiency that uh, really needs to be corrected. Was that conversation that was begun by her or was she subjected to it? Well, the one on December the 17th was definitely she was subjected to it. And it certainly appears that the then clerk of the Privy Council was speaking on behalf of the Prime Minister um, when he had the telephone call, which she uh, secretly taped. And very difficult to believe that the Prime Minister didn't know about that until we well, all you know, did. He had actually met with Warnock earlier that day. So, yes, and Warnock in the call says he is literally um, you know, conveying the message from the Prime Minister. So Repeatedly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do want to make one point, though, however, um, for anybody that's li- uh, list- listening to that tape or reading the transcripts, just don't forget uh, that she knew it was being taped. OK, so in other words, she can script what she's saying so she knows because she may use it in the future as a political tool. Right. So that she sounds very good. Having said that, um, I don't think there's, I mean, Warnick's voice is not particularly threatening, but there's no question that what she originally testified to, in fact, did take place. Uh, but uh, I've had involvement in actually in a couple of cases where informants who knew they were being um, taped spoke in a certain way and said certain things because they thought they could use it. Did you hear anything? Did you hear anything of that in her conversation with Warnick? Just the, uh, the repeated statements of it over and over again. And although the, a very significant thing is you never heard Warnick say, oh, you know, I've never heard that before, right? He never says that. The other thing that I, I found really interesting in her comments, and it's actually in the 
um, the description of the uh, uh, the conversation that she's had, where she actually says that Section 13 notice that she got from the Director of Public Prosecutions, which said, you know, we're going to go ahead with the prosecution, we're not going to proceed. She has, to my knowledge, never before said she shared that with anybody. But in her comments about that, she said that she gave it to two staffers in the PMO and you know they just had no idea whether out of stupidity or just laziness or lack of appreciation of the significance of it they didn't even know that they had it so I think that really adds though to that whole sense of you know this is in large uh, part uh, a lack of clarity uh, a lack of definitive rules about you know who does what and uh, why and where and it just resulted in the prime minister's office continuing to try to get her to change her mind and intervene on something and i personally don't think i think the legislation should be changed why in hell does the attorney general get to overrule a prosecutor on a specific case I no, you can't be- and that's that's what she objected to when peter mckay said yeah. he would have re- he would have pushed back instantly had that ever happened but they couldn't because that legislation wasn't in force until mr trudeau's government passed it now i want to say this to you if i'd find myself in a situation that jody wilson raybould found herself in that she's described i can guarantee you i would have been pushing the red request button on some of my conversations just to make sure that I could substantiate what I was claiming. Then why not tell the person on the other end of the line you were doing that? Well, probably some of the time uh, you don't want to do that. Some of the time you're just making sure that you have evidence yeah. of what how you've been pushed. Yeah, um, okay. I acknowledge I may be bringing a bit of cynicism to this. Uh, no, not you. Too, but, um, no, but Scott. My, my real point, though, Roy, is... Um, you know, we don't need another investigation into whether or not her recording without telling him was improper, okay? It is what it is. What we need to do is get at the issues here that caused this and that are continuing to cause this and take what steps we can to reduce it ever happening in the future. We can't have prosecutors interfered with. confidence. We, we can't have prosecutors interfered with by attorneys general. Yeah, but the law lets that justice. happen. Well, I know. But for most Canadians, this is now an issue of confidence. Yes. I agree. And deservedly so. And deservedly so. And it all began to go south for the Trudeau government when he stood in front of cameras and said that the first story by the Globe and Mail was false. Yeah. Don't don't you find it interesting as well, too, that since Gerald Butts resigned, I I find that the... uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's remarks have been, um, you know, stepping on landmines more and more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is uh, uh, clearly, and their their communications and their strategy and their they're just their unwillingness to get out in front of this and say, okay, fine, you know what? Basically, everybody knows what's happening here, so let's not make it into a controversy by not letting people speak or testify, and then let's turn the focus to how do we fix this so it doesn't happen in the future. They're reacting. And you cannot, you, you, yeah, and you cannot make a case if all you're doing is reacting. You've got the compass pointing at all 32 compass points at the same time. Let me ask you about the uh, Admiral Mark Norman case. Yeah. Now, the first we spoke yesterday with uh, Brian Platt from the National Post, who's yeah. doing some great reporting on this, and he said that the first first piece of documentation that uh, the Admiral's defense team received, Marie Hannon and her team received, and they've been after documentation for months now which has been withheld by the government or delayed by the government, the first thing they got 
was an email or a memo, rather, that was sent by Michael Wernick to the prime yes. minister. Yes. They wanted that. So they got it, 60 pages, and every single word was redacted. Yeah. Not making the judge happy. How do you interpret this? Well, do you remember the old days when the Correctional Service of Canada would release reports that were redacted like that, too? Yes, I do. Okay, I mean, it's, uh, and you know what I find really ironic about this, and um, uh, Murray Brewster of CBC wrote a really excellent piece about this as well, too, sort of linking the SNC-Lavalin issue. Um, You know, at the heart of this uh, whole thing about SNC-Lavalin is the importance of prosecutorial independence, right? And yet, take a look at the Admiral Norman case. I mean, it appears that the prosecution is absolutely wound up in, in, you know, getting instructions from the Privy Council office and the Prime Minister's office and as being a tool. The judges even commented negatively about that on the act- actions of the mm-hmm. prosecutors. Yep. I just find the contrast remarkable. Not only that, Scott, they declared him guilty before he was charged. Well, yes, I mean, that argument can be made. I think the, the real point here, uh, Roy, is going to be, and um, uh, this is one of the points that uh, uh, Murray makes in his article, uh, the Admiral is charged under Section 122 of the Criminal Code, which is breach of trust by a public officer. Okay, he is a public officer. And the bottom line is going to come down to, in my opinion, I suggest for all your listeners you watch for this, is going to come down to um, he did what he did in releasing information, assuming that they can prove that he released the information, was a violation of gov- government policy and therefore wrongful action. But a Supreme Court of Canada case from 2006 called uh, Boulanger actually said that the action must be something that was done for corrupt purpose, you know, in other words, like personal gain. And so uh, quite literally it's going to come down to, I think, uh, an analysis of whether or not the, um, in effect, the ends justified the means. Because what he was doing, if he actually did it, was trying to stop the new liberal government from overturning uh, the uh, construction contract of, ship, of ships that had finally been granted. Yeah, a, supply ship, a supply ship for the Canadian yeah. Navy, which and it really, really needed, and which, by the way, came in on budget, on time, through Davy Shipbuilding in Quebec, and is doing yeoman service for the Navy now. And the uh, uh, after the uh, controversy that was caused with the, le- the leak of the information, the Liberals uh, reversed themselves and went back and went ahead with the... Uh, uh, with the uh, uh, procurement project. Yeah, because Davy informed them what the cancellation cost would be. Well, yes. And $89 and million. Supposedly, Admiral Norman gave the information to him, and Scott Bryson, who, of course, is from the Maritimes, was the one who brought forward the idea that, oh, we should maybe reconsider giving it to Irving Shipping in New Brunswick. And so as a result of all of that, and I think this is some of what is also coming out, is that the government is going to extraordinarily lengths, once again, to cover things up. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it appears as though, contrary to what the you know, supposed claim is in SNC-Lavalin, it's all about prosecutorial independence. This doesn't look particularly good for prosecutorial in- independence. No, it doesn't. And for the admiral, whose uh, petition for his legal fees to be paid for, yeah. to which he's entitled, I mean, he's entitled to petition for it, he's not automatically granted, but when you consider... That even that the government has even agreed to pay the outside legal expenses for government officials who will testify against the admiral, if the court if the case ever goes to court, everybody else seems to be getting their legal bills paid, but Admiral Norman has to pay it out of his own pocket, which could easily lead him to bankruptcy. Um, I don't know what the specific policy is, but I am almost certain that there will be a specific policy. 
Uh, and if that policy is not followed, then yes, that is a, a very much a red flag, and mm-hmm. there will be mechanisms that he could use to um, challenge the legitimacy of that decision. You know, what I also find interesting in this case is the judge's um, actions and statements. This judge, she's not just letting it Agreed. Yeah. roll onto her desk, and she's not allowing herself to be told what to think and do. Yeah. She's pushing back and pushing that hard. Yeah, she's the one that made the comment about the uh, questioning the independence of the uh, uh, public prosecutor's right. office from uh, the Privy Council yeah. office, as though they were the ones controlling what to do. Scott, let me take a break. We'll come back with Scott Newark, and uh, we'll, we'll get at the story of Joshua Boyle. His criminal trial is underway, and his wife, who is now identified, uh, has accused him of violence, mental cruelty, including death threats. And Boyle, of course, was previously married to Omar Cotter's sister, Zainab. The uh, province of Ontario is looking to change, we know this, right, They're changing the license plate slogan that's been around forever, yours to recover, to open for business. That's creating a lot of backlash and, and interest and, I don't know, license plate slogans to me are usually a waste of time. Quebec had a great one, La Belle Provence. And then they changed it to Je me souviens, I remember. Right, good for you. Anyway, Scott Newark is with us, um, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, was a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. What do you think of Open for Business? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's not yours to recover, it's yours to discover. Is that what I said, yours to recover? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Um, I, I did not frankly, say that. Uh, I know this is a rare uh, instance, but I agree with you. Um, I don't really care what's on the license. No, plate. no. I like the one in Missouri. Show me. What, what's, some... what's the one in uh, one of the northeastern United States about freedom? Oh, um, uh, you're talking about New Hampshire. Yeah, 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 yeah. New Hampshire. Live free or die. Live free or die. Live free or die. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And when you drive into New Hampshire, which we did often from uh, Vermont when we left, when we were living in Quebec, the first thing you see when you drive into Hampshire is a big sign, highway sign, official state sign, that says uh, if you're 18 or over, 18 or under, you, or under 18, you must wear a seatbelt. If you're 18 or older, use common sense. But there's no requirement by law to wear a seatbelt in the state of New Hampshire. Whereas in Texas, that sign when you drive in the state says, uh, if you're uh, over 16, you must carry a gun. Oh, sorry, kidding. Okay, yours to recover. Now, let's get to the jo- Joshua Boyle case. Oh, uh, yeah. All right? So here's this individual who claims he was captured by um, Taliban-related terrorists in Afghanistan. He was walking with his wife in Afghanistan while she was pregnant. He comes back, and uh, the trouble begins. He also had an appearance at the prime minister's office, yeah. which very, which many people still find rather strange. And Boyle was previously married to Omar Khadr's sister Zainab. Now he's being tried, 19 criminal charges, and his wife says he was guilty of violence, mental cruelty, including death threats. What's going on here? What do you make of this one? Well, the first thing, of course, is that, uh, as I'm sure you'll remember, uh, when you and I discussed this case maybe a year ago, to your horror, I surmised that the unnamed victim at the time was likely his wife. And it turns out that that was correct. Don't put words in my mouth. Pardon me? It was not to my horror. I agreed well, with you. You were shocked. I I'll was go not back shocked. I'll tape for you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
This is a, I mean, it's been quite a week. Uh, she's finished her evidence now. She's actually, it's interesting, testifying in another courtroom by camera. She's so intimidated by the, the you know, the presence of this guy. Um, and she has described in real detail this completely uh, to the uh, controlling behavior, uh, almost to the point, I would think, of psychopathy of uh, this guy and what he did to her. Uh, including violence and uh, uh, absolutely, if it's accurate, sexual assault. Uh, just, But it's the controlling uh, dominance to the point of the guy writing up a written list of what her obligations right. were. Right. Just sort of beyond weird. I mean, as Okay, case, Scott, I've got, I, have, I have 30 seconds. Go to uh, CSC real quick. Okay. You and I have discussed for years the fact of a Correctional Service of Canada uh, improperly releasing high-risk offenders. There's a great story uh, that ran in the uh, National Post giving a list of them. Uh, it was based on the release of this, uh, I don't know, guy, girl, so last name's Harks. Uh, on uh, long-term offender order, and it's just the fact that uh, Correctional Service of Canada are releasing these high-risk offenders. Okay. They are not using electronic monitoring, and they're not telling the truth to people about why they're doing it. We'll talk this about is a that. Major concern. We'll talk about them more detail on an upcoming show. Yours to discover. Thanks, Scott. Always All right, good well. talking to you, my friend. Scott New York, former Crown Attorney in Alberta and former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Quebec Premier François Legault is pressing ahead with his party's legislation banning the wearing of religious symbols by any public servant in the province, arguing the legislation enshrines the secular nature of Quebec society. Federal political leaders have all denounced the law, with the exception of the Bloc Québécois. Here's the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. I think it's hurtful because I remember what it's like to grow up and not feel like I belong. And I think about all the young people in Quebec right now that won't be able to pursue maybe their dream job, that won't be able to become a, a police officer or a judge or a teacher. And that to me is, is sad. And uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer had this to say. I think a liberal society based on uh, on fundamental freedoms and, and openness uh, must always protect fundamental individual rights and should not in any way impede people from uh, from expressing themselves and, and in any way infringing on those fundamental rights. And here's the Prime Minister. Quebecers, like all Canadians, are proud of living in a uh, free and just society. Uh, and I don't think uh, a lot of people feel that in a free society we should be legitimizing discrimination of our citizens based on religion. Justin Trudeau, joining us from Montreal is Julius Gray. He is uh, one of the most prominent human rights, civil rights lawyers in uh, the province of Quebec, in fact, across this country. And, uh, Mr. Gray, thank you very much for the time. Always good to speak with you. This type of legislation has been attempted several times by Quebec governments, beginning, I think, with the government of Jean Charest. Is that correct? Yes, there was an attempt with Jean Charest, although that one was a long time ago, and then there was the um, uh, Bouchard-Taylor Commission. But in the last few years, both the, the, the PQ government and the Liberal uh, uh, government uh, attempted to bring in some sort of legislation, this is worse. This is, goes further than anybody had uh, uh, contemplated before, and I think it's a truly dreadful law. What was contemplated or suggested previously, and why did those individual pieces of legislation or proposed legislation fail? Well, there were very 
similar things about uh, not allowing policemen or judges, uh, although I think the uh, idea of banning all teachers from wearing any identifying signs is, is particularly galling here. Um, but they didn't use the notwithstanding clause. They expected to be challenged. They said they might use it if they lost. But here they're sh- uh, sheltering it from review right away. Uh, the Liberals had talked about forcing people to have an uncovered face for receiving certain services. Now that's back, and I think that would not have passed before. Um, but the worst thing about this law, really, is that it imposes an ideology. It says Quebec is a société laïque. And it's very much like imposing an ideology, you know, like Duplessis' Quebec was Catholic or East Germany was socialist. And you can be very Catholic and not like to have it uh, rammed down somebody else's throat. And you can be very socialist in East Germany and not like the fact that your neighbor couldn't oppose it. And it's not that you can't oppose it here, but it is truly the creation of a national ideology based on not on, on state uh, uh, neutrality. State neutrality is, of course, necessary. The state cannot favor one religion over another, but on a sort of rather aggressive notion of uh, laicite, uh, which means the state is non-religious. Now, how will this actually affect people working in the public service? Take us out onto the, into the actual uh, society. What, 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 what changes for public servants in the province of Quebec if this legislation is in fact passed? Well, they have a grandfather clause, which means that the people presently there will continue to work, even if they wear their signs, but only so long as they work in the same position in the same department, which means they can't have a promotion, they can't do, do anything. Apart from that, you will not be able to be a teacher. You will not be able to uh, have any position. Uh, there's a, 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 an annex to the law which lists the positions that you will not be able to have in government um, and in anything that has any sort of uh, power of command. Um, and I think it basically, you know, I heard the extract of Jagmeet Singh. It's exactly that. There will be a lot of immigrant kids who will not be able to pursue their goals, uh, especially since, if you look historically, uh, immigrants have often worked in the police. The Sikhs often have. Uh, Irish in Boston were often in the police. Uh, immigrants were often teachers. And in fact, teachers often wore all sorts of signs. When I was a boy in Quebec, there were thousands of priests and nuns in full regalia who taught in schools and were excellent teachers. My piano teacher was a nun, and she was wonderful. Um, so uh, I think. Uh, It's a law that basically uh, disenfranchises certain people. And then the other thing is, who gains from it? Nobody. What harm is there to a person who shows up uh, before, uh, who's stopped by a police officer to see that this officer wears a turban? I mean, the RCMP has had turbans for a long time. It hasn't affected the way in which they render justice or or treat people and, and, and so on. So it's a law with only losers, no winners, an enforced ideology, and it's one that, contrary to what Quebec says, because Quebec always says doesn't like multi- multiculturalism. I don't either. I think people should integrate. But I think the way to integrate people is to grant individual accommodation so they can integrate. But here, you're actually ghettoizing them. You're telling them, here's where you cannot go. It's a law that makes no sense in terms of Quebec's 
um, non-multicultural ideology. It makes no sense morally. It makes no sense in terms of any immigration policy. So let's go to the fundamental journalistic question. Why? Why are they doing this? Well, one of the answers is because, unfortunately, it appears to be popular in the polls. Now, before we jump to a conclusion uh, that uh, Quebecers are, are, are like to discriminate, uh, that's not it. It's been presented in a particular way. Uh, it, it hasn't been, uh, people are unaware of the consequences. So for the time being, right now, this law may in fact enjoy the support of not an overwhelming but a slight majority of Quebecers. Um, and politicians are often sensitive to majorities. But the other thing is that this, um, you know, the new government in Quebec is a government uh, that is more anchored in the countryside than in the city. And it's part of a Montreal against the rest of the province rivalry. Uh, it's not an accident that Mayor Valérie Plante has come out strongly against it uh, because of the constituency, constituency which she represents. Um, so it is a, a country-city thing. It's a, 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 a political matter where they hope to make gains uh, because people are not afraid, uh, not, not aware of the uh, consequences for uh, their fellow citizens. Uh, I don't think Quebec, uh, Quebecers would accept it if they really looked at, say, the story of a, a young man who wants to become a policeman and he now can't. I don't think they would like that, and I think there would be a reaction against it. But it's so easy uh, to, in an, an age of populism, it's so easy to manipulate notions of majority support. Now, if I recall correctly, the Jean Charest proposed legislation along these lines would have forbade the wearing of a niqab, a face veil, in public. Is that, am I right about that? But that's because, a very because, limited thing. You right. Remember, but you know, I just want to bring. I just want to make this point. You, you talked about um, how uh, public opinion responds to these positions that are presented in a limited way. There was, I think, it was eighty-three percent of people across Canada at that time, when they were polled, supported the the Charest legislation. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. And I think all over the country, there is considerable prejudice against the niqab. Uh, and it's not entirely unjustified. You see, the niqab is a, altogether a more complex thing. If you want to immigrate, uh, integrate immigrants, you can't do it unless they're friends and so and see their faces. Right. Furthermore, uh, you can understand why somebody w uh, who wears a niqab can't teach. How could somebody teach English or French if the children can't see? Or you as a lawyer, you want to be able to see the face of a person who's testifying. Well, yes, it's useful. Although the Supreme Court went to that and, and agreed that the need to have uh, the witness occasionally outweighs the need to see their face. There are, are certain, certain ways of compensating that. Nevertheless, I think the niqab is far less easy to justify than a hijab, a kirpan, or a kippah. Uh, the niqab actually hides the person. And, you know, I can understand uh, people might, be, uh, might want to see the policeman who arrests them might want to see the customs officers who opens their suitcases. Um, you know, those are, uh, the, the, the niqab is a, in a special category. But let's remember one more thing. The niqab is statistically completely insignificant. If you're going to talk about judges in the niqab, for instance, there hasn't been a single judge in Canada ever that posed that problem. Uh, the hijab, the kippah, uh, the turban is a different matter. Mr. 
Gray, that uh, my recollection about that particular case in France, was I, was, did I remember that correctly? Yes, I think you did. And remember, the Supreme Court of Canada also said you have to uh, show your face for a, a driver's license. Right. Uh, I'm not uh, a great defender of the niqab or of a complete burqa, uh, though I think in private life, of course, it has to be allowed. You can't stop somebody from walking on the street. Right. But uh, as far as the other signs, I think, which are much more statistically significant and so on, it's a different matter. We don't have access to the European Court, but we do have access to the United Nations Special Committee under the uh, Covenant on Social and Political Rights. And we did win the fight against uh, Mr. Bourassa's invocation of the notwithstanding clause in order for unilingual signs in Quebec. The, the committee held that that was a violation of freedom of expression, and McGill and uh, Quebec complied. Let me ask you a question. Is, this ex- is much of this exclusive to the province of Quebec? No. I think these things are happening all over Europe now, and I think they have different ways. In some ways, Quebec has, is particularly sensitive to certain things, but then France or Germany are to others, and the rest of the country has its own problems as well. So, no, I don't think Quebec is different from other places. I just think that in Quebec, when once these things happen, you often see a divide between uh, majority opinion and the minority, the okay. non-Francophone minorities, various so, opinions. But it's not different. From so what's the, what's the response then from the people of Quebec? And one of the arguments that I've heard, one of the positions I've heard is that Francois Legault is introducing this legislation and feels fairly confident with it because uh, the immigrant vote in Quebec didn't vote for him anyway. And and so he's moving forward with it, uh, at least based on political consideration. But it didn't work out for the PQ. Or no, the and, and that's why I, meant, I wanted to ask you, what are the people of Quebec saying? The people of Quebec initially supported because they don't know the full consequences and so on. But just as I think on language right now, most Quebecers, both English and French, support the compromise we've had on uh, Bill 101, in which the most uh, 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 anomalous parts of the law were set aside by the courts and the rest remained. So I think Quebecers will turn. Quebecers are, are on the whole, you know, it's, 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 it's an open place. But you're right. Uh, one of the things that makes Quebec uh, so uh, occasionally frustrating in its initial legislation is that uh, because the minority always votes one way, its views are not taken into account. And it's Typical. It's typical of, of, of uh, uh, any place where there is a group of people that will always vote the same way. Well, I'll tell you, I, there was one particular, and I've talked about this on the air, there's a very frustrating, you know I lived in Quebec for 10 years recently because we would talk. Uh, but it was a very frustrating situation. I was driving home with my wife one day, and there was a small car parked on the uh, shoulder of a, of, of a country road right beside a, a municipal um, sign that lets you know what municipality you were driving into. And the municipality had an English name and a French name. And uh, they were equal size, oddly enough, on that sign. But the two men got out of the uh, little car, and they had a roll of black tape. And they put the black tape, they, they, they placed it squarely over the English letters, the, name of the, the English name of the community. And by that time, I was alongside the car, and it was a Quebec government car. And it was, it was just from, it's a microcosmic moment, but it really frustrated the hell out of me. Yeah, it 
frustrating. And you know what? If a municipality has bilingual status, it's, it's entitled to have the same size. But, you know, when it comes to, to well, if it was the government doing it, it it's most unfortunate, uh, excessive zeal and right. really inexcusable. Right. But individuals, you always have individuals who spray things and do things both yeah. ways. I mean, yeah. during the referendum, you found insults against both sides right. that were uh, unpleasant. Uh, you know, people worry about uh, um, the increase in anti-Semitic graffiti, but, you know, it takes five or six zealous idiots to spray it all over the place yeah. in a city. So, uh, that's Mr. Gray, I, I've got to run, but I have to say I have to say to you, I share your concern about this, this yeah. law. But the law is terrible. So good to talk to you again. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Julius Gray is also a uh, dean at McGill University. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.